The seventh annual Grammy Awards ceremony was held at the Beverly Hilton Hotel in Beverly Hills, California on April 13, 1965. As awards shows go, this one was notable for demonstrating the tug-of-war still going strong between rock and more traditional pop music. The Beatles, for example, were introduced by Arthur Fiedler of the Boston Pops. It's important to understand that the Grammy Awards back then were a rather simple and straightforward awards ceremony. The MC was always a familiar face to the attendees and to the middle American TV audience. On that night, Steve Allen, known to most through his popular TV variety show and his occasional forays into jazz piano, hosted. He started the evening's festivities with a stand-up routine that poked fun at the artists up for awards and at the recording industry in general. The rest of the evening then became a routine of celebrity awards presenters who told a few pre-scripted lame jokes, read the list of nominees, and then announced the winners. The recipients then gushed their thanks to parents, friends, record companies, agents, and God, usually in that order. To provide variety to what always dissolved into a snorefest for both the live and TV audience, record companies were permitted to provide artists who were promoting their latest offerings. For Liberty Records, that was Johnny Domino's The Wax Is Still Hot hit, My Way or the Highway, which was considered mildly edgy in the sense that the singer is telling his girlfriend that she'll have to acquiesce to his demands or he'll be gone. In other words, put out or get out. While this may sound incredibly misogynistic now, it didn't back then. Liberty Records was hoping that this presumptive hit would set the stage for John's second album, the genesis for what changed that night's ceremony from ho-hum to bafo started that morning when John paid a trip to the Beverly Hills Hospital. John went to the hospital on the morning of the award ceremony to visit Bill Byers, who'd had a mild heart attack, if there is such a thing, the previous day. Billy's doctors had decided to keep him under observation for a couple of days while they considered all of the available options, such as additional observation, treatment with heart medication, open-heart surgery, or death. John brought a bouquet of flowers, which hid an assortment of condoms, and a half-pint of Cuddy Sark scotch, Billy's favorite. John spent a half-hour with Billy, generally catching up and talking about the Grammys, at which time a nurse came in to wheel Billy away for tests. Billy looked back at John as she wheeled him away, and noted that he'd save some of John's latex flowers for another time. Then, as he was pushed through a set of swinging doors, Billy wished John luck and said he'd be watching tonight. John intended to make his way to a set of elevators, but got lost almost immediately. Somehow he ended up in the wrong wing of the building. He saw a sign that indicated a set of stairs, so he walked down one flight and emerged in the Children's Cancer Treatment Center, where he first encountered a very pretty five-year-old. She spoke first. Are you lost? John was both amused and taken aback by this little girl's sagacity. He pretended to be offended by her question. Me? Lost? What makes you think that? She crossed her arms and nodded knowingly. Okay, follow me. We'll show you how to get out. We? Yeah, me and Martha. I'm Emily, and this is Martha. Martha stood about two feet taller than Emily. Her head was about twice the size of a grapefruit. Someone creative had stuffed her pillowcase head with rags or cotton to give it shape. 
eyes, eyebrows, and nose and mouth were painted on. Martha had bright red lips framing a wide, beautiful smile, pretty blue eyes, and rosy cheeks. Emily, in contrast, was a beautiful little girl, but quite pale, with faint circles under her eyes. Martha's hair was all brown curls topped by a facsimile of a nurse's cap. Emily wore a pale pink frilled cap, which matched her nightdress. Starting at Martha's neck, buttons and a seam were also painted vertically down the front of a white sheet which completed her uniform. The sheet stopped just short of the floor, and John could see wheels peeking out from underneath. When Emily turned to lead the way, John could see that Emily was tethered to Martha by several semi-transparent flexible tubes that may have contained liquid. The back of Martha's uniform was open to reveal several devices which sported lights, control knobs, and dials. They produced a faint humming noise that John hadn't noticed before. Wherever Emily went, Martha followed along obediently, as did John. As the little parade passed a nurse's station, one of the nurses looked up and asked, Hey, Emily, who's your new friend? I don't know. He got lost. What's your name anyhow, mister? Before he could answer, the nurse jumped in with, Wait a minute, I know you. I bought your album. Emily, this is Johnny Domino. To which Emily said, Who? Johnny Domino, the singer. He sings that song you like, the, the one about tomorrow is another day or something. You know the one I mean. You're always singing it. <laughs> it's almost tomorrow, John said. I like that song. Then sing it for me. Emily was clearly embarrassed, but John had the impression that she was also faking a little. With a little more coaxing from him and the nurse, she gave it a try. She started to mix up the lyrics after the first chorus, so John joined in and they finished the song as a duet, by which time some patients and staff were standing in the hall. When they applauded politely, Emily hugged John's leg. Do you know what the Grammys are, Emily? Emily shook her head. They're special music awards, and they're tonight. I'll be singing that song. You can watch it on TV. You'll see me, and you'll see the Supremes, and you'll even see the Beatles. Emily's eyes grew wide at the mention of her favorite group. I love Paul. He's so cute. Can you get him to write me something? An autograph? I'll sure try. I wish I could go. John looked at the nurse. She met his gaze and shrugged as if to say, I could ask. John nodded and she picked up the phone and started speaking to someone. John made small talk with Emily. He found out that she lived in Burbank, that her parents were both teachers, that she was being treated for leukemia and that there was no set time for her discharge as she was being treated with experimental drugs. When the nurse got off the phone, she said that it might be possible for Emily to visit for an hour or so, but only if her mom signed off on it to absolve the hospital of liability. John said that he'd pay for a private ambulance and for any hospital personnel deemed necessary. He also told the nurse that Ben would greet Emily's party on arrival and usher them to seats. When John left, Emily was very excited about attending so that she could see her music idol, Paul. TV coverage of the Grammys began at 8 o'clock. 
Unlike present-day award ceremonies, these Grammys were not preceded by three hours of red carpet can-you-top-this fashions, which go from outfits which feature enough material to clothe the populations of small villages in Uzbekistan to just the opposite. Scraps of cloth that wouldn't conceal a squirrel's private parts. Sure, press photographers made celebrities run the Kodak gauntlet, and a few TV cameras were discreetly placed near the hall's entrance to record some videotape that might be shown on tomorrow's network news. That was about it. No wedding cake hairdos. No lingerie being passed off as evening wear. No cosmetically enhanced plastic faces. No silicone boobs and butts. No Botox brows. No flavor of the month stars and starlets with the half-lives of toilet paper. In short, no pretenders who were famous only for being famous. Yes, there was plenty of lift and separate on display, but the tuxedos were black, the dresses mostly pastel. Although a good portion of the TV audience would still be watching in black and white. And practically all else was left to the imagination. Johnny Domino got a respectable reception from fans in the galleries. It was relatively tame when compared to some of his casino shows in Vegas, where women who were old enough to know better would throw their room keys on the stage for Johnny to ignore. He was amused by remembering his reaction to this phenomenon on early tours when he thought they had done this unintentionally. Back then, he collected the keys left on stage after the show and handed them over to management in case their owners returned to reclaim their accidentally misplaced property. His busmates laughed themselves silly over his naivete. Steve Allen kicked off the proceedings with a rather pedestrian and condescending monologue in which he stated that this was a time in music when... It doesn't hurt if you're a beetle or a chipmunk or something like that. For people, it's a little tougher. <laughs> the Beatles got their revenge for Allen's snark by winning Grammys for Best New Artist and Best Performance by a Vocal Group for A Hard Day's Night. Another Brit, Petula Clark, won the Best Rock and Roll Recording for Downtown. Performances during the show's first act included Stan Getz and Astrid Gilberto performing The Girl from Ipanema, which won Record of the Year, and a moving tribute to Nat King Cole in which Sammy Davis Jr. performed some of Cole's most famous songs. Woody Allen's award for Best Comedy Album led off Act Two. Jimmy Durante performed Hello, Dolly! as a substitute for Louis Armstrong, who was indisposed. Jerry Herman, Dolly's composer, accepted the Song of the Year award. In keeping with the show's traditional music-slash-new-music format, John was scheduled to perform next. The ceremony was beginning to wind down at this point, but some of the biggest awards remained, so people hung around. However, anticipating a traffic jam when the show let out, a number of attendees headed for the restrooms and a few to the lobby bars when John was introduced. The plan was for John to start off with his signature hit, It's Almost Tomorrow, and then to segue into his latest offering, My Way or the Highway. Steve Allen returned to the stage for a little patter and a remark about how... I like to put on a Rolling Stones record so I can take it off. Which generated polite laughter at best. He then introduced John as a Liberty Records rising young star, at which point the orchestra started the opening vamp, and Johnny Domino strutted out on stage and took the mic off its stand. This movement drew the immediate attention of Dwight Hemion, the show's director, who was watching in the control room up in the back of the auditorium. What's he doing? Hemion said. In rehearsal, John had performed with the mic on its stand, and the TV cameras were set up accordingly. 
Now, it looked like Johnny was going to walk around, which would disrupt camera placement and require some improvised relocating. Hemian didn't welcome Johnny's surprise this late in the broadcast, which had run smoothly so far. A minute ago, he could almost hear the champagne corks popping, but Johnny Domino had changed that. Johnny took the mic in hand, moved a few steps downstage, looked directly at Skitch Henderson, the orchestra's conductor, and made a slashing motion across his throat for Henderson to cut the music, which he did. Johnny then spoke directly to the attendees and to the TV cameras. Good evening. I apologize for interrupting the show. I know that this is a very important night for you, he gestured to the audience, and for the music industry. The production crew was in chaos. Cameramen were panicking into their headphones. Should I stay on them? Should I pan to the audience? Should I go black or fuzz the image? In the control room, assistants to the director were asking... Should we cut away? Should we go to commercial? Should we cut off his mic? Hemian tried to remain cool. He said, Wait, let's see where this goes, but cue Steve Allen to stand just out of sight in the wings and give him another mic. He may have to step in. John continued. But some things are more important in life and I got a reminder of that today. He paused to collect himself. You could hear some members of the audience shifting uncomfortably in their seats. John continued, I want you to meet somebody who's going to sing the song with me. He strode to the side of the stage and disappeared from view for a second. A few faint boos began, but they turned into gasps when John reemerged, leading Emily by the hand in her pale pink nightdress and matching frilly cap with Martha trailing behind. Emily looked terrified. Her eyes were wide open and her expression at seeing music royalty spread out before her was a mixture of shock and wonder. Martha's expression didn't change. This is Emily. Say hello to all these famous people, Emily. The best Emily could manage was a little frightened wave. Tony Bennett, in the front row, next to Connie Francis, waved back, and Diana Ross, seated just a little farther along, said, Hi, Emily. Emily's mouth fell open at the response, and she started to shelter behind Johnny's leg. John gently drew her out to stand alongside him and knelt down so they could share the microphone. Tell them where we met this afternoon, Emily. At the hospital. Emily was startled at hearing her amplified voice for the first time and looked up at the speakers that were mounted high above her. Where exactly at the hospital? In the cancer center. Emily's reply stilled the audience. Are you a patient there, Emily? Yeah. I have leukemia. The audience went dead silent. And who's this next to you? This is my friend Martha. She has to come with me wherever I go. Oh, why is that, Emily? Emily looked fondly at Martha. Because she gives me medicine. Is that what those tubes are for? Emily nodded. And you need that medicine to get well, isn't that right? Yeah, because it keeps me alive. Well, then Martha's the best kind of friend to have, isn't she, Emily? Yeah. I have lots of friends at the hospital now. Maybe some of them are watching you right now. Why don't you look right into that camera over there and wave to them? Emily did. 
The control room had quieted somewhat, but the tension was palpable. An assistant director kept asking, Should we cut away? Should we go to commercial? To which Hemian responded incredulously, Cut away? Are you crazy? This is fucking gold. But General Motors... Fuck General Motors! This in unison from Hemian and two other crew members. I'll bet some of the doctors and nurses are your friends, too. Yeah, I know lots of them. They're nice. Emily abruptly whispered something into his ear. John held the microphone close so the audience could listen in. Are those really the Beatles? They sure are. That's John, Paul, George, and Ringo right there. All four waved and said, Hi, Emily. And that's Paul. He's my favorite. Better than me? Kinda. This drew sympathetic laughter. Emily was charming a nation. By the way, I like your outfit. My mom made it. She's right back there, Emily said, pointing off stage. Well, I think it's very nice. I noticed that Martha has brown curly hair sticking out from under her cap, but I don't see your hair sticking out. Why is that, Emily? Because I don't have any. The medicine took it. The audience reaction was audible. Some women began to fumble in their purses for Kleenex. But it'll come back. I hope so. They need to find the right medicine first. Then my hair will grow again, and then I can go home. What do you miss most about not being at home, Emily? Riding my bike and running around and playing with my friends. And my dog. I miss playing with Skipper. When you go home, will Martha have to go home with you? I think so. Probably. Well, I hope you get well and go home real soon, Emily. And I'll bet that everybody here hopes so, too. The applause was long and genuine. Emily beamed. John stood and addressed the audience. The Children's Cancer Treatment Center at Beverly Hills Hospital is doing great work with children like Emily. There are many others like her. Too many. If you have the means, it would be nice if you could make a small contribution. Cancer treatment is very expensive. I saw some kids in the ward today who were unable to move around as freely as Emily because they're tethered to IV stands. Martha's are expensive, and there just aren't enough to go around. But you can change that. John kneeled back down and spoke to Emily. Are you ready to sing our song now? Emily nodded eagerly. The conductor cued the orchestra, and Emily and John began to sing. Yesterday's over, today's nearly done. It's almost tomorrow, the dawn's nearly come. We'll face it together, we'll smile at the sun. Now and forever, we've only begun. I'll be there with you, I'll be there with you, to share in the the fun day after day together we'll live them as one 
weary, too tired to stand, too tired to stand. I'll put my arm round you, I'll put my arm round you, or give you my hand, or give you my hand. Live each day just as though it's your last. When it ends, then it's all in the past. And if there is sadness, and if there is sadness, and some days are long, and some days are long, at least we'll know now and always. There's truth in this song That yesterday's over That yesterday's over Today's nearly done Today's nearly done It's almost tomorrow The dawn's nearly come We'll face it together We'll smile at the sun Now and forever it together we'll smile at the sun now and forever I've only begun the ovation was overwhelming a mixture of cheers and tears and as for Johnny Domino well I don't think I need to tell you how everything changed for him in those few minutes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Frenchtown. Remember that new episodes drop on Mondays at midnight, so please continue to join us. Frenchtown was written and produced by Jim Gatto. The principal readers are Dana Schatz and Jeffrey Anbinder. The technical director is David Keith. Introductory and playout music was written and performed by Lisa Spike Norman. Whoever you are and I'm coming home again were written by Jim Gatto. It's Almost Tomorrow was also written by Jim Gatto based on an idea from Lorraine Nelson. Additional musical recording was provided by Chrissy Gardner, Ryan Gardner, Gracie Price, and Megan Keith. The Frenchtown graphic design is courtesy of Carolyn Kamerska. Special thanks go to associate producer Kathy Keith and to Lorraine Nelson, Stephanie Levine, and Elaine Bissett. Frenchtown is a fictionalized memoir. Although some of the places mentioned existed at one time, they are either gone now or vastly different from what they were over 60 years ago. The characters are composites of friends and relatives I once knew, but they were not modeled on individuals who actually existed. Any resemblance to people or places is unintentional and coincidental. The entire contents of Frenchtown is copyrighted. For further information about Frenchtown and its contributors, please send inquiries to frenchtowninfo at gmail.com.
stay.